Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Carrie Kalsher. We're at A to Z Wine Works Rexel Tasting Room. Uh, it's July 11th, 2022. Carrie, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the first question to get you started is why wine? Why wine? That's a big question to get started, Rich. Um, I, f- I sort of fell into wine, uh, or wine found me, perhaps. I was um, keen on travel. I always have been, love traveling. And I wanted to engage in a career that would allow me to work nearly anywhere within reason. So I became a bartender. Uh, I I learned how to serve and host and bartend and I kind of had to claw my way uh, as a woman into the bartending profession in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, on the Missouri side. Um, and you know that was that was something that I was really proud of having achieved, and I was young, and it was fun. It, it allowed me to make a great living and still have the freedom to travel quite a lot. Um, and then I sort of found my way. I was working in an Irish pub. I found my way into whiskey um, and scotch, and started to learn where those things came from, and got really interested in in the heritage of what I was serving and in how things were being served. And so I started to teach classes and I put together a lot of our training materials for the restaurant. And then I just sort of morphed into knowing more and more about wine, even though we didn't really serve much wine there. um, It sort of became this broader question for me, this, um, you know, the broader study of beverage and Wine sort of found me in those moments. I, I sought out um, friends of mine who were distributors and went to tastings wherever I could and you know, kind of soaked up that information, but it still wasn't resonant to me that I wanted to, to mm-hmm. work in wine. Um, and then I, I took a sabbatical, which bartending afforded me the ability to do, <laughs> in Italy, and I moved to Italy for a few months got a little apartment in Florence and went there with a couple of girlfriends and um, stayed just you know in Florence and around Florence and of course was exposed to some delicious wine there but it was a part of my life at the time. We had dinner with a, a friend of ours who had been traveling through and these two girlfriends are like two of my best friends, long-term best friends, one of my high school best friends and my current roommate in Kansas City. So women that were very close to me. And it took this third party friend at dinner um, over a bottle of Amarone. He said, can can we order this Amarone? I keep hearing all about it. It's this incredible regional wine. And we said, sure, go ahead. I'm I'm all of you. I was my late twenties at the time. And so he orders this wine and it comes and I I lost myself in the wine. And it was, I, I started to describe the wine and I got really excited about it. And he looked at me and he said, why aren't you doing this as a profession? And my two girlfriends looked at me at the time and went, oh, come on, like too easy. Why didn't we see this? You know, this was, all three of us were just flummoxed. Of course, this is a a wonderful natural progression of the career that I'd already chosen in hospitality and restaurant. So 
that was the moment. That was my little aha moment over a wonderful dinner um, in Florence, Italy. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty romantic. It's a pretty romantic beginning yes. story. Yeah. So that was that was the. Um, that was the impetus for me, and I, I went back to Kansas City. Well, I, I had the benefit, of course, of being in Italy when I made that realization, so I, I traveled a little bit and got to see all of Tuscany and got to know um, Italian wines really well. So where that is usually an Achilles heel for a sommelier, that was something I knew um, pretty well, at least in that kind of central region mm -hmm. area. Um, and then when I went back to Kansas City, I jumped in feet first. I'd already been a part of the restaurant community, so my colleagues said, here are, the, here are the people that you need to be in touch with to start testing through your sommelier levels, and here are the people that can get you in the industry. And I launched in from there. Haven't looked back. So before that moment, as you, you mentioned, wine was not really a big focus of the, the service you were doing. What initially kind of intrigued you about wine before you kind of dove into mm. it? I think early on it was the connection to the place. You know, it was that this wine comes from this exact spot in the world. And I started to be intrigued by what made it unique from that particular spot. Mm -hmm. And that has never changed. That's still something that it's allowed me to travel through a glass, mm -hmm. which is, yeah, something that continues to grab me today. So once you came back, tell me about the kind of path forward. You, you, you mentioned that why not, why, why am I not doing wine? Right. So why, why did you choose the path that you did in terms of uh, some training? Uh, rather than something else. What was it about that particular path that appealed to you? It was the only one I knew. <laughs> um, yeah, I think at the time I was just so green, I had no, no clue. And I thought, oh, maybe I could be a winemaker. But I, I also love the viticulture aspect of things. And so I asked a lot of questions. Um, I had the benefit of having some pretty wonderful sommeliers in the community in Kansas City. And uh, when I got kind of tossed into one of those tasting groups, I met my um, current best friend, uh, immediate and, the, and now still current best friend. She was the only other woman in that that. All the, all the gals just started nodding behind you, by the way. She was the only other. You're going to hear the, the, the female theme, right? Um, I, <laughs> this was a different time. I'm, I'm old enough to now say that. Uh, and she was the only other woman in the tasting group. And while we had some great supporters in the men in our tasting group, the external of that in that industry was not as engaged or supportive of women in the industry. Um, yeah, it was it was a totally different time. So I asked a lot of questions and, and especially in that core group of people that were fierce supporters of one another. And I started to kind of pull the threads, but it was a lot of, it was very pressure filled. And I think that that has informed how I want to show up and how I hope I show up in our industry now. Those early days of being young, being green, not really knowing which direction to go. I faked it until I made it a lot. And I felt really unprepared. And so now when I approach teaching or education or mentorship, it's, you know, it's really important to me to make somebody feel like 
they can ask any question, mm -hmm. that I'm an open book, that there's mm -hmm. no, you know, that the proverbial dumb question, there are no dumb questions, you know, you, you can't know, you can't scoff at somebody for not knowing, we're here to, we're here to promote wine, we should be truly teaching people what is wonderful about wine, so, yeah, I think, I had no idea, <laughs> I had no idea. Mm -hmm. um, I remember going to tastings in those early days and just pretending I knew how to taste a glass of, <laughs> oh, it smells like, what the heck did I know? <laughs> I knew nothing, you know, nobody told me how to learn those things, the, you know, that, that community wasn't readily available at the time. So yeah, just started pulling little sweater threads until I got to, got to Oregon, really, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get you to Oregon, I'm curious about <laughs> the rest of that. So as you dove in, what, was, what were the exciting things about wine? You mentioned kind of the, the, the place, mm -hmm. the idea of a specific place. Mm -hmm. What else about the, like, the idea of wine education was appealing to you? What did you enjoy learning? Everything. Wine is, what's the word for it, omnology, right? It's the study of everything, if you let it be. And that's so appealing to me. Um, I love the natural world. I reset in nature. It's my church. And being able to, to enjoy something that teaches me about geology, which I have a severe, I almost majored in geology. I love it so much. The formation of our earth and I, all of it. Um, geology, geography, history. Um, I was a philosophy major, so, you know, get me a glass of wine and get me going, right? And, and uh, <laughs> that, that's another connector of people, connections to the land. It really is just every single study. Mm -hmm. Chemistry, yeah, it, it's all so intriguing. So in that process of sort of faking it till you make it, as you, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, at what point do you start building confidence? At start, what point do you start feeling like you are starting to make it a little bit? Gosh, Rich, I'd say that took me a lot longer than I wish it had taken me. Um, I think still I'm, yeah, there's part of, have, have I made it? I, I don't know. There's still so much to learn. Um, but I think that that mentality keeps me honest and it keeps me learning mm -hmm. and knowing that I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know that I've ever felt truly, oh, well, I've arrived now, you know, <laughs> and that's it. Mm -hmm. There's just always more tweaks. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I've realized as of late, I'm a constant, um, be I'm a betterment agent. <laughs> I, like to, I like to make better the environment, make better myself, make better what I know and what's around me. That applies to universally everything in my realm. So yeah, I think I'm still, mm -hmm. still going. Mm -hmm. Less fakery. I think the settling in, maybe turning 40, uh, you know, the settling into skin a little bit and, mm -hmm. and owning the lack of knowledge, which is, that's probably the key piece I wish I would have told my younger self in that tasting group. Own the lack of knowledge, just go with it. Mm -hmm. Ask those questions that you think are dumb. So as you started down the path, what were you thinking in terms of sort of long-term career? Did you have something in mind, a goal in mind, or a kind of path that you were thinking of? 
Not even a little bit. I was all over the place. Yeah, I, I wanted to go to Cornell to study philosophy and be a philosophy professor. That was <laughs> one potential path, um, which would have also let me study wine. Mm -hmm. It was a little, yep. Mm -hmm. um, I thought about, after college graduation, moving to San Francisco because I'd be close enough to a major wine region and, and a big city um, to be able to do either the sommelier path in a large-scale mm -hmm. environment or or work at a winery. Um, and my best friend decided she wanted to move to Oregon. This was somewhere that had intrigued her. She'd worked to harvest here. And this was another place that I had always looked at, Portland. Um, I, in fact, almost moved here when I was 27. Uh, and I still had never been to Oregon when I moved here. So I moved sight unseen. But yeah, it was that um, maybe sommelier, maybe not. but. As I kind of alluded to with the Kansas City scene, again, at the time, it's totally changed now. Um, you know, there's been, as you all well know, a pretty big psalm reckoning in, the, in recent years. And this was way prior to that. And, you know, there was definitely a piece of me that felt, as a woman, that I, I didn't know where my place was. And it wasn't clear, and it didn't feel comfortable, and it didn't feel natural, and it felt like a, a big struggle, you know? And so I, I really wanted to find the environment that I wanted to, to live in and be in first, mm -hmm. and hope that the other fell into place. I think I set myself up for as much success as I could, um, studied what I wanted to study and loved, and, you know, yeah, so I sort of fell into the one of two path option. What did, you, what did you know or what were your impressions of Oregon before moving here? I think when I was a kid, I dreamed in Pacific Northwest landscape. Like when I moved here, the first hike I went on, I cried. I was like, this is, when I was playing in my backyard with my dolls, this is what I imagined, right? This is the, the landscape, the, the mountains, the environment, the evergreens, the everything about it, it just screams, I'm in the right place. And to have moved here sight unseen is pretty hilarious, you know? Um, so yeah, I think for Oregon, I just had this view of rain evergreens, um, and I, I had the idea that the wine industry here, and here's the real reason I chose Oregon, the wine industry here was still nascent. It, it still was at its inception to a large degree, and the founders of our industry were and are still active in our community, and that's not something you can say for other United States wine regions of this size and in this in this area. So, I you know I was really drawn by that idea that I might be able to affect change or be involved at some level of inception versus way too far down the path of overblown. Mm -hmm. So I loved that idea of we're still figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be part of that community. What about your impression of the wine here? Mm, loved the wine here. <laughs> mm. That was an easy one. Uh, I was, of course, I was working as a sommelier in restaurants now in Oregon. That was my kind of secondary or in Kansas City. That was my secondary um, step into wine was I was courted by the owner of the, at the time, best wine 
collection restaurant in KC. Very well known, um, been in business over 30 years, you know, like the place. And they kind of wooed me away from this really easy money <laughs> bartending gig uh, once I got into wine and I, I became the assistant psalm at that restaurant and really helped work with the wine director and learned under the wine director how to taste wine. You know, he did these great classes and I was able to taste through, you know, Chateau de Cam and, and it all kind, you know, like first growth Bordeaux and, you know, amazing single clove burgundies. And I don't think I would have gotten that kind of education many other places at that, at that starting point. So I had that kind of nice, in and what I tended to focus on because our wine director was a total francophile was the the domestic program so I got to you know recommend and, and help cultivate more of the domestic program and Rex Hill and A to Z were both on our list my list and we had a grand award winning wine list uh, for a time and an award of excellence after a time so really extensive Pinot Noir selection uh, and I, my go-tos were the Rex Hill Reserve and for budget-conscious people, the A to Z Pinot Noir. I, I had that on our list for 40 bucks, you know, a bottle. It was awesome and so easy to grab and pour and people just loved it. So I, I applied to, I was so bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. I applied to only eight wineries before I moved out here and I landed at my top spot. So that was, was pretty ambitious of me, I think, um, to just take the leap of faith. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so the wine was paramount. It drove me to here, absolutely. I mean, how do you not love Oregon Pinot? Goodness. So before, uh Talk about that next step for you. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, working at a place like that in Kansas City yeah. and starting to kind of, like you say, explore and examine and help build. Tell me about your understanding then of of building a wine list, of, of selling wine in a restaurant, and of, of sort of that interaction between wine and you and wine and customer. How did that? How did that kind of? Um, what, what did you learn from that? Oh, I learned that I absolutely loved that moment where, where people's evenings, dinners were made better because of that, that aha moment of wine and food pairing. And I, that still gets me today, you know, when, when people taste food and wine together and they have that moment that I think is in some cases pretty uniquely European in style and the way that, you know, wine and food are approached. We typically don't approach things that way in the United States. You know, we drink what we like to drink and we eat what we like to eat. So that grows together, goes together thing is, is sort of secondary for us. So having those moments of, you know, people thinking they were just coming to a, a nice dinner and wanting a good bottle of wine and then recommending something, being able to tell them about the place, um, having something within a price point that didn't offend or scare people. You know, you need the range, you need the realm. And then being able to, through question and answer, get to something that worked for the whole table, that made every person at the table say, oh, this is so cool, and now I know something a little bit more, and I've just enjoyed my night so much better. You know, that, those are the pieces that grabbed me. And I think that's 
what every great wine list should strive to be, not an expression of the sommelier, but an expression of what, what's going to elevate that customer experience. Mm -hmm. I think we get in our way sometimes with that as sommeliers. Too much knowledge, perhaps. Yeah, I think that, that key, like once you get there, it's a, we become snobs about anything, right? You know, if you, you, you use a certain hair product, then you can't go use the stuff at the gym, right? It, you, you become a, a you know, in the snob is the wrong word, but you, you become educated about the thing mm -hmm. and then it's precious. And why would you drink X if it, you can have this, this beautiful Y over here and you know, you now know how good this is. This is no longer good, right? Your Boone's Farm days are long past. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's it's kind of trying to remember where that middle ground is as a sommelier, and you know, having something on your having something on your list that appeals to every person and makes somebody excited. What did you find were the most exciting things for you as selecting a wine? And what did you find were the most exciting things for customers selecting a wine? Oh, that's a great question. For me selecting the wine, it was, I would get excited about specific wines because they'd go with specific things on our menu. And then I'd, you know, I would love it when I'd know more about it. You know, it allowed me to kind of delve into regions one at a time or producers one at a time. So I would get like individually excited about things and then be able to share that. Um, and then for customers, I think what they got excited about was my excitement. I think, you know, people resonate with passion. They resonate with somebody that truly wants to share this information with them. And I can tell you at the time, it probably wasn't 100% accurate information. It was, you know, there was a lot of like, well and smoke where I could, right? I knew some and I was excited and I probably expounded a little bit too much, but yeah, I mean, I think it was, you know, the, the feeling that I wasn't trying to make them feel dumb by not knowing this already. It's, it's an immediate, um, I think, craft that we should all aspire to in the wine industry. And, and I, you know, sometimes I'm not there, but I try really hard. To, to make your customer feel at ease with, mm -hmm. with whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, walking in the front door of our tasting room can be intimidating for somebody who's never been to a tasting room before. Now it's cavernous, you look around, and you know, it's that same feeling, right? Somebody's coming to a nice dinner at a nice restaurant, they may be getting engaged that night, you know? They may be on their first date. This may be a, a night that they're struggling with something. You, you wanna put them at ease and make them feel like they don't need to know this, my probably two classic line is like, I'm, I'm glad you don't know this stuff. I'd be at work. This is what I do for a living. Let me do it. This is fun for me. Let me, let me share this with you. And, and so I think that that was where I saw people get really excited and, and just chill out and, and, you know, ask that budget question first and then steer them into something that, yeah, that they can feel good about. When it came to the wines themselves and sort of the stories behind them, did you find that certain stories of wine makers or wine places resonated more with than others? Probably, but I don't know that I'd be able to pull any out specifically. Certainly Italy. I mean, it was just so easy because I got to travel to those regions and see those places before I was 
in any way jaded by any piece of the industry, right? It was before I was even in the industry, so there was this like, I'm gonna work in this industry excitement about it. So I think, and I still go back to those places, and I have friends, um, I have friends that are, like, I think they just got back from Italy two days ago that are in our wine industry, colleagues in our wine industry whom you have interviewed for sure, uh, who are, you know, where do I go? What do I see? Where, what should I do? And, you know, it's so much joy to like go back to that time and say, you got to eat here and you got to try this wine and you have to go to this producer and this is really special and go have a bottle of El Bosco Syrah on the wall on, in Cortona overlooking the sunset, you know, like, doesn't that sound so romantic, but it's like six euros and it's the coolest, you know? But I think those things really, they always stuck with me, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the personal experiences. Mm -hmm. That's why they tell masters of wine and master songs they need to travel to be able to really, you know, you gotta go to the place and get that experience. No one sharing that with you is going to have that same resonant piece. So then on that note, you mentioned that earlier that kind of wine was the ability to travel through a bottle or travel through a glass. So how do you then, you've been to Italy, you have this kind of, how do you translate that to someone who hasn't as you're selling them a bottle of wine? What is it that come, comes through you to, to make it work? Mm. How do I describe that bottle of wine? Well, for Italy, I talk a lot about the, what grows together, goes together and that regionally these grapes, you know, that they grow, they're, they're ridiculous because there's over 200 native varieties there and this is why it's so difficult to learn as a sommelier. Um, those regional grapes, they're, they're fiercely important to the people um, and that, that grapes grow everywhere. That was, the, that was a big resonant piece for me um, was that you'd be taking the train to like the coast or something, you know, all, all bathing suited up and ready to go and there would be like a little apartment with grapes growing on the roof, you know, or, or in the little backyard. Everybody had like three or four grapevines and you could just see vines everywhere. And so I think the, the, the description of the places I've been, it always centers around the feeling of it there and how, you know, you can go get this bottle of wine that was grown right up on the mountainside that you can see and that the sea air touched and, and have it with this, you know, regional, you know, cuisine and it just, it transcends all of it. And so explaining that in the, the ways that we would bring cuisine, mm -hmm. I think that that's just to jump a little, what makes, or one of the, one of the things that makes Oregon so special is that we do have regional cuisine, salmon, mushrooms that goes with the wine that grows here. Even though we brought this grape in, it's a French grape. We get that. Yeah. Um, but we do sort of have that you know, that piece. Um, so I, I love explaining that, you know, here's, here's what's great about we're harvesting from here and we're sourcing from here and this is why these two things should live together. So you talked about your ambitious entry into Oregon and aiming for the top spot you wanted to. So uh, when you did land here, what was your original role and what was your first impression of this place that you had been selling the wines from for so long? Oh my gosh. The whole story getting here is pretty hilarious. In fact, I nearly moved to Italy in the week before I got here. <laughs> you well, can tell, hear it, right? Tell us, yeah. that, tell us that story. Oh my. I, um, 
when I made the decision to move here, um, it was, you know, my best friend was like, we're going, here it is, we found an apartment, and I was like, okay, I sent my eight, my ambitious eight resumes out, you know, and she had sent 200. So she had, she'd been doing phone interviews and I'm just like, oh, uh, you know, I am not a lazy kid, but I don't know, man, I'm, I'm just gonna have to go figure it out. And so I ended up flying to Italy for a week uh, when I was supposed to be here and I had said on all of my resumes, I would be here April 1st and I pushed that to the 9th, my arrival. And so I got this really cool email when I was in Italy from uh, our HR director at the time, Charlotte. I told this story at her uh, retirement and she and I were both like tearing up a little bit because it, it really set the tone. It was the thing that set the tone for my entry into Oregon. And she sent me this email, I almost remember it verbatim, that said, hi Carrie, um, I, I hope you're well, we received your resume, and I, again, I'm old school, I sent it snail mail, and I sent it directly to the owners. There was no job posting, I didn't even know about wine jobs, like, none of that stuff. I sent my, I sent my little letter, like, you know, basically to pigeon carry it to, to Deb and Bill. Um, and it, it, it found Deb, and she's, um, well, you may have already, I think you've already interviewed Deb. And so, uh, you know, Deb, Deb Hatcher, Bill Hatcher, Cheryl Francis, and Sam Tannehill are the founders of A to Z. So, again, again I ambitiously sent my resume out. Um, and so I got, this, I got this email from Charlotte that said, Deb, Deb has gotten your resume, and uh, while we don't have a position available here, we would love to, Deb would love to meet with you and discuss your future here in Oregon. I remember that line. I think it was yesterday. Discuss my future here in Oregon. And I thought, how fortunate am I that this woman wants to meet me, this, you know, this owner of, of the, really, the, at the time, the largest winery in Oregon, still one of the top three, um, wants to meet with me and discuss my future here. I found that to be kind of a, a theme. I got that from a few people. We don't really have a job, but let's talk. Let's have coffee. I love your resume. I'd love to meet you. And I ended up going to coffee and kind of forming connections with people who I never ended up working for, um, really didn't have positions available, um, and, and that I still am in contact with today. So I was embraced immediately. And that was so unique uh, to Oregon. So I got, I got here, I, well, Charlotte said, Deb is traveling a lot, is very, very busy. She laid the groundwork like, I was never gonna see this woman. Um, traveling a lot, uh, and she has availability on the, on the 9th of April. And I said, I will drive in on the 9th. I'm so sorry, I can't make it. And she said, okay, let me get back to you. And I was like, oh, I've missed my chance. I don't get to meet with Deb, that's it. And I got an email the next day, and she again, uh, over and above, like, I hope Italy is wonderful. I'm sitting here looking out my window onto the, uh, my office window onto the um, beautiful vineyard in our backyard. It's a gorgeous day. I hope it's beautiful for you too. And I just thought, how lovely to take the time to connect with me instead of just scheduling a meeting, you know? Um, and so I, you know, another tick in the box for easy. And, she said, how about the 14th? And I said, that sounds great. That was, it's my birthday. I will see you that day. And I didn't tell them it was my birthday. I just, you know, okay, yep, I will be interviewing. Or not interview. It was not an interview. There was no position available. I will go meet Deb on my birthday. What a lovely birthday present. 
And so I did. I came in on my birthday and um, I was all dressed up in my heels and my suit, you know, very Oregon. <laughs> and <laughs> I sat in Deb's office, which was here, uh, and I'm pointing for the camera, apologies, right next to me here, which is now this beautiful loft we've just renovated. Um, in the now closet was Deb's office. And I came up here and I sat five feet away from where I'm sitting now for three hours. And um, at the end of it, I mean, I, you know, I was relaxed. I was having a conversation. I wasn't interviewing, right? And at the end of it, we walked downstairs to the front door, and she, you know, she had a couple of bottles of wine, and she introduced me to a couple of other people, including our CEO now and President Amy. And you know, I'm still do do do, thinking I've just gotten to meet Deb and had this great conversation. And she said, "So I have an idea." We don't have a position available, and I said, "Yeah, I know, I know. You know, I knew this wasn't an interview coming in. I'm glad to have met you." And she said, "Well, I'm thinking we should just put pen to paper and write a position for you." And I said, "Okay, let's do that." <laughs> and she said, "So I suggest we go our separate ways for a week. We meet next week. You write your list of what you'd like to do in the building, and I'll write my list of what I think we need in the building, and we'll see how they align." And so I came back for my second interview a week later. Our lists were identical. And I started working like three days later. <laughs> so my, yeah, by the 23rd of April, I was fully employed as the direct sales manager here at Rex Hill E to Z. That's incredible. It's pretty that's fun. That's an incredible yeah. story. It, it really is. Um, it was so intensely flattering, and the home I found here was was so overwhelmingly welcoming. You know, I felt like I should be here. Um, one of my colleagues at the time said, "Oh, yeah, it was yeah, it was you or no one. Like we didn't really have a job. You know, she liked you. She liked your resume. She wanted you, and that that's always stuck with me, right? I didn't apply for a position. I didn't beat out other people. I, I got to really think this was a good spot for me, and then be completely convinced because they also thought I was right for them, and that's rare, I think." 12 years later, here I am. <laughs> what was the, what did the, you mentioned biggest winery in the state at the time, obviously. Yeah. What, what was the, your kind of initial impression of the place and of the work being done here? Well, it was much smaller at the time. You know, we've since expanded our footprint quite a lot. We call it a campus now. Um, you know, we were trying to do a lot under a very tiny, very old Rex Hill roof that mm -hmm. was a, a, you know, renovated barn to begin with, um, farm, house, and barn. Um, so yeah, it was, it was growing. You know, there were, I think, 25 full-time employees at the time, many of them production. Mm -hmm. So we were, you know, it was just coming out of a recession, 2010, so it was starting to ramp up again, and, you know, people were holding on for dear life in a lot of different directions in, in our industry broadly, so in, in our world broadly. So yeah, it was a slow start. I didn't have an office. I worked out of the tasting room. 
um, on these big old, you know, you kind of imagine like the old like war games, Apple computer, the big <laughs> huge <laughs> computers with like the cash drawer that would go ding and come at you when you'd make a sale. Um, it, it felt like, you know, the 80s were still kicking around there and in so many ways they were. Um, yeah, it was, it was difficult to get work done. There was a lot of work to get done. Um, because they didn't have this position prior. They, they ne had never had a direct sales manager. They'd had tasting room supervisors or tasting room managers over the years as Rex Hill. But when A to Z bought in 2006, they'd kind of um, moved through some tasting room supervisor positions and that was it. So this was their, their like, we're going all in and we're gonna broaden our direct sales program from here. So yeah, it was, I had no office for a while. I remember Bill Hatcher coming in. I'd renovated the closet. <laughs> it's still a joke here. Uh, look at your closet now. It's part of the big kitchen renovation we just did, our, my old closet. Um, it was, it held all of these old, like in the, from the olden days of Rex Hill, pre A to Z purchase, platters and mismatched teacups and none of the stuff we use these days. And it was just floor to ceiling shelves of the stuff that had closed in. You know, we'd used it for event storage and so it was just everything. I think the vacuum cleaner was in there, that kind of stuff. And I said, I'm gonna turn this into my office. There was a little tiny window, like a cell. <laughs> and they said, sure, you know, whatever you wanna do. And so they gave me kind of free reign to do that and I swept out the whole office and cleaned it all out. There was stuff in there you don't wanna know about. And you know, moved some stuff out into the other hallway and created a little office in there, which stayed an office up until really this last January when we renovated this whole building. Not my office, but an office. It stayed an office. Uh, and that was the first time that I even had one office day to like catch up on things, do the schedules, get work done. I wouldn't trade that for the world because now in the position I'm in, when I ask someone to do something or I put someone in a role, I've done their position. I've done their role. And I've done it in the worst ways, you know, like trying to do a schedule while you're also trying to entertain customers. It was, it was really hard. There were late nights. I was quite often the last woman standing in the building. And yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'm kind of picturing Harry Potter's room. It's a lot of that, yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of that. I'll take you down. I'll, I'll show you after our interview. Yeah, there's a lot of that here. But, you know, I, I loved it for that. I loved that they gave me the free reign to, to do what I needed to do. And I loved that from there they, you know, they helped me make it mine, you know. It was furnished and there was a beautiful quote on the wall. And, you know, it was, they helped, they cared, they cared. When, so you mentioned kind of how your job came to be and how the job description came to be. So tell me, in your estimation, what were the biggest, sort of the biggest first steps for you jumping into a job that hadn't existed before? What did you need to take care of first? And what were your kind of initial priorities uh, as you were sort of figuring out the lay of the land? I'm a big fan of do nothing for a little while. Do the job, learn the job, absorb for a month or two and make notes. Um, I think that where 
people tend to fail early on in a position is to come in and make broad sweeping changes before you know why things are done the way they're done, but then change everything, right? Um, so yeah, I think I, I, I observed and I became part of the culture and I you know, hung with people and I, I went for tequila shots with the team and I, you know, I, like, I got to know everyone and I, and I learned. Um, and then I started to, to note the changes that could be made, small changes and then large changes. And we completely revamped the entire wine club within the first six months. We took, um, we broadened what our offerings were for direct sales. Um, you know, under, under that, during that time, we, we adopted e-commerce, we moved into, you know, more web applications, we, all kinds of stuff had never been touched. Um, the wine club was being operated by one of our admins in the office. It wasn't even someone associated with hospitality. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of opportunity. There, were, there was a team of three full-time people and like a smattering of part-time folk. So yeah, what didn't we change, you know? Oh, we've grown sales. Oh man, so exponentially, it's, it's hilarious in the last 12 years, yeah. yeah. So we, we changed everything. What were some of the implementations, say, in the first few years that you're particularly either proud of or things that have sort of stayed to this day that you kind of think of as kind of the marks you made in the early days? Yeah, I think that wine club piece was a big one. You know, that was, this, that was a big struggle. Um, I think we were the first to start, or at least the first I knew of, and I did a lot of research, so I'm sure there's somebody out there, there's always an exception to the rule, right? To launch into flat rate shipping and really start paying attention to e-commerce shipping because it, you know, it was very clear that as a shopper online myself, you know, I'll abandon a cart if you don't pay for my shipping. It's, it, you know, that's just how it is these days, right? And those are the companies that you you find loyalty with. So that was a lot because I, you know, I had to I had to write a projection for something I couldn't ever show. Like I had not seen anyone else do this yet and I had no one else's data to go on. And I spent a good amount of time with my, my best friend Excel and some beautiful spreadsheets. And I, uh, yeah, that's one I'm, I'm still really proud of is, is getting to a, a workable flat rate shipping program. And we've since, you know, grown it from there. And of course that's, that's a pretty standard piece, flat or free shipping, mm -hmm. but yeah. And then the, you know, the wine club revamp was a big one. Um, our, our wine club manager then at the time and I spent days, you know, off site just trying to focus entirely on what this would look like and how we wouldn't lose members and we wrote handwritten notes to people and it was tough because we were moving from a relatively inexpensive and easy to access um, program into um, more expensive, mm -hmm. harder to access, more exclusivity, mm -hmm. and we lost virtually no one. So that was something I was really proud of. We were proud of those of us who worked on it together. How has your role changed in the time you've been here? Whew. 
Um, quite a lot. In my same ambitious quest to just learn it all, do it all, be it all, I said yes to everything. So I was, I was pouring off site. I think I was, you know, it, this is one of those, those quotes that still stays with me to this day. It, it replays in my head. I say it out loud often, and I'll, I'll say it on record here. Um, I was saying yes to every offsite pouring, every tasting I could go to, every piece of anything for the winery that I could go represent the, um, and especially for Rex Hill. And because we don't have, you know, the owners are the owners of A to Z. Mm -hmm. We own Rex Hill as well, but Rex Hill was not founded by the owners. So, I got to, through that, become something of the face of Rex Hill for us. And I think that key piece, that allowable piece, where they've given me all the reign of this brand in really big ways, um, has kept me here for 12 years. You know, that, that is, it's a lot of autonomy and it's a lot of power in a place that unless I wanted to make my own wine, which I do not, that it's not open and available to that degree. So, um, yeah, the, boy, you told me I would digress, and there it is. There's my little digression topic. But uh, So I said yes to everything, and I was going to say on record, Amy looked at me, Amy Prozenjack, our CEO, looked at me at one point and I said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll go to that tasting, I'll do that. And I said, this is what I would be doing in my off time as a sommelier prior. Like, I'd be going to these tastings, I'd be pouring for this thing, I'd be so excited to do this. And she looked at me dead in the face and said, Carrie, after a while, everything's work. And boy, was she right. <laughs> and then you gotta get to a point where you've now proven yourself in this space, right? I had to prove, you know, through jumping in and saying, yes, I'll do that, that I could speak in public, that I could present, that I could talk about our wines in a, in a wildly educated way, that I was the right representative for this brand and for our winery. And because of that, you know, I was put in those positions more and more and more. I got to go to Europe and do a presentation for the, the Swedish sommelier team for the entirety of Oregon. I, you know, I got, I, the things that I've gotten to do because I've, I put myself in the way of that, they're huge. I mean, it really is what's led me here is that just saying yes to everything. And it's the biggest piece of advice I give anyone starting out. Don't, don't say no because you don't have the time. Just say yes. You'll have a chance in your later career to say no to things. You'll have a chance to be picky. And everything becomes work after a while. <laughs> So as you were progressing in that kind of in that path, uh, I'm curious about the transition for you from a place where you were gathering and selling wines from throughout the world, yeah. throughout the country, to focusing on a, <clears throat> on a single brand and even a sub-brand of a larger brand. Um, how did that experience go for you and what were some of the, were there bumps in the road along the way? Um, no, it's so much easier to know about one brand than a thousand or a million, really, right? There's a thousand just here in Oregon. <laughs> um, it was a joy to get to see how wine is made to this degree. Mm -hmm. Touring a winery can't do it for you. It took me the first year to understand just how much, how intrinsically wine is linked to the land, how much we are farmers, how much we rely upon the season and the climate and the conditions around that specific vine. 
and the type of vine and then what we do with it when it comes, you know, the, every step. And that's the thing I hear I think most when I take people on tours is I didn't realize how much went into this. I didn't understand how much went into this and I still get so excited to share those pieces that sat with me today. I, I just got the privilege of moderating a seminar for Oregon Pinot Camp this a week ago, a week and a half ago now. Um, and I, it was the white wine seminar. And so I got to talk about my first experience with Pinot Gris. Seeing Pinot Gris come across, again, a thing I said yes to, working the sorting line, sticky, bugs, the whole thing, right? Cold, wet, but yes, yes I will. And it's kept, you know, this, this one of my best stories for people who have never had this experience, who think Pinot Gris is a, a green grape, oh, you know, makes white wine most often, right? A green grape, I thought it was. And here comes this little cluster of Pinot Gris coming across, you know, trucking along. And I said, ooh, this one, I'm twirling my hair really young. <laughs> this didn't get right, but looks like, you know, oh, sheesh. <laughs> and Michael, our winemaker, is standing across from me. And he goes, oh, no, that's actually Pinot Gris. And, you know, <laughs> what? <laughs> Why is there Pinot Gris? This is a Pinot Noir vineyard. And then I, I got, it was all open to me. Pinot is one genetic vine, they all express different traits, you know, that Pinot Gris is just an, ex it's a genetic expression of one vine, and its skin is, is gray pink, you know? It is not a white grape. You have to remove it from its skins. It, it, it opened this whole, sub you hear it, right? The subsequent set of amazing pieces of knowledge that lead to what, make, what makes Pinot Gris, Pinot Gris. And I wouldn't have had that experience uh, for not having said yes and for asking the right questions or making bumbly statements, <laughs> rather. Um, so I think, I think those pieces along the way were, were huge, le learning that intricate bit. But letting go of the broader regionality was difficult for me. And I, I stayed um, excited about it through learning. So I, I, did, I never stopped testing through my sommelier levels. I in fact got my, finally got my, my certified sommelier um, certificate, my license, whatever you want to call it, to pour, uh, here in Oregon. So it was something that I had just put off taking you at the time, had to travel for those things. They're a little easier to take now, everything's much more computerized, but I traveled for 99% of the tests that I've had to take in the world. Um, and so I ended up taking it here, I think within the first month of living here and finally got that out of the way and then took my, started testing through the WSET levels and did my level three WSET. That helped me kind of broaden that. And through that interaction, I've now been able to certify teaching the level two. So that has helped me, you know, the, the teaching aspect of it has helped me stay in that realm of broad regionality. Mm -hmm. um, I've helped with friends wine lists and helped put those things together when they're in between wine directors and that's still been a, a wonderful labor of love. And then I got my certified wine educator um, title. Gosh, it's been some years now. That was the one of the, the guttural scream when I passed that was I think heard around the world. If you guys heard that, sorry, but yeah, that was a big one. Uh, and that was, you know, that kind of keeps, keeps some of that broad, but mm -hmm. you do become myopic. And you, you know, now that I'm 12 years in, you really have to focus on it. 
and I'm done taking tests. I'm, I'm done with that piece of it. I'm certified six ways to Tuesday. Now it's just keeping up on teaching and teaching the team in our tasting room and bringing in a wine and refreshing myself on that region and seeking those things out. It never dies in you. I think it's important to, as a sommelier working in one region, to your point, it's important to keep that broad perspective because not many people who work in specific wine regions typically have it. Mm -hmm. It is not often you find even winemakers that have like big cellars filled with different regional wines. You know, it's pretty hyper-focused. And, and maybe that's because of the craft and you have to be, um, or it's pick and choose from the regions that you've worked in. But, you know, it's, I think it has been rare, at least in my experience, to come upon someone that has that really big, broad knowledge base of the world of wine. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's important for those of us who have that and are working in one region to keep it because it's valuable perspective. You brought up earlier, uh, Oregon Pinot Camp, obviously, just a couple of weeks ago, still, still fresh in our, in our memories yeah. here, uh, back after a few year hiatus. Uh, tell me about sort of service to the larger industry outside of, outside of Rex Hill and A to Z. Yeah, that's been a big one in recent years. Um, and certainly the pandemic fast-tracked that quite a lot, being able to take a step back. Sorry, it's so loud down um, My trajectory, I think it's important leading up to that, was I moved from the direct sales management position into a senior manager of sales, and then into the director of sales and education. And that has allowed me, um, that, that director of sales, it's not just consumer sales. I am also now working and have been for a while, especially on the Rex Hill end of things out in the nation with our, our regional VPs. So I'm the only person that works in our national sales realm outside of our owners and winemakers who travel when we need them to um, with the salespeople in the regions that, that is here at the winery. So that has been you know, really wonderful to get that, that broader perspective of our, our industry out in the market um, internationally in some cases and certainly domestically. I've traveled to every single major city, it feels like, helping, helping our team sell both brands mm -hmm. out there. Um, and so as that kept going and I was exposed to more and became, my knowledge became more broad-based about sales in general, um, I, was, I started to be asked to join committees. And, you know, I, I sought them out initially. I think I was tossed onto the Shahala Mountains Marketing Committee in my first year, and I'm very green and like, just, I don't, I don't know what we're marketing. What's going on? What, tell me everything, you know? Did that for a few years and kind of backed out of that. Wasn't quite ready yet. I needed the, I needed the, the time and the bigger, broader knowledge. Um, yeah, so I was asked to join, um, gosh, so I'm on so many committees. It's ridiculous. I'm a ridiculous, <laughs> I have to, this is the now you have to say no, because I said yes to everything. This is my philosophy, right? I said yes to everything, I learned a lot, and now I'm, I'm choosy. I'm, you know, I know where my time should go and I want to excel at it if I am going to do it. So yeah, I was asked to join the Oregon Pinot Camp committee, steering committee in 2017, and, um, that has, that, that's been such a labor of love 
I, I get to work with truly incredible change-making people who are so excited about Oregon education. And I think beyond that, it's a, a committee, a team of people who are excited to hear one another's ideas mm -hmm. and learn from one another. And those are the boards and the committees that work. When you can sit in a room and, and say the fumbly thing and ask the dumb question and have people support you and say, yeah, love that idea. What if we did this instead of, hmm. You know, we've all been on those committees where you just feel like, I don't want to say anything because, you know, so-and-so owner of winery over there just looked at me wrong, you know? <laughs> like, oh yeah, I don't know anything, right? Um, so it's been a, it's been a, an embracingly hospitable mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. Really lovely. And tell us about this particular OPC back after a couple of years. What, what, what was it like? Um, stressful. <laughs> uh, I put myself in the position of chair <laughs> for this particular OPC back after a couple of years. Yeah, no, no pressure, right? Um, but I think it would have been stressful regardless. So it was just the way that the, the sort of leadership team, you know, made it out after resignations and changes in earners. Gosh, everybody changed everything during the pandemic, right? And I was not supposed to be chair for another year from now. And we had some shifts and changes in the committee that took out the two gals above me. Uh, they took themselves out themselves out and so I said okay yeah no we've got this and the you know the staff was like we'll, we'll be here with you we're gonna help you all through it you know the, the committee was rallied but we had shoot easily half of the committee was brand new three of them had never even been to OPC um, our main staff person Megan Markle who's amazing had never been to OPC had never seen OPC um, and, and she's taking over as the, the lead staff. So it was, um, it was, we're all in it together. We were in the trenches in a lot of ways. And there was some, some functional, like systemic knowledge, I think that we were disappointed to see that we'd missed, you know, little things like, oh, we forgot to put a water station here. You know, itty bitty things that no one noticed but us. But yeah, I think those, those little crack slips when you're doing something every single year, repeatedly, it becomes muscle memory, you know? And you're like, yeah, we got it, we're going in, we've got the whole cycle and we're ready to go, we know what this looks like and this looks like. And luckily, we work in an industry of community, people who are not here to watch you fail, they're here to help you succeed. And we, we've always had that mentality, you know, I think, I hope it resonates with everyone. It has always resonated with me that the all ships rise with the tide, and we really felt that community in this year. I, think I felt it more this year than even in years past because we were so proud of ourselves that we'd done it. The, every winery participating, every camper that traveled to be here, you know, it was this, we finally get to be here. We finally get to do this. So it overshadowed all those little things that we might beat ourselves up about. and. I'm really proud of what we did. I'm really proud of what we did. So while we're on that note, I want to talk about 2020 a little bit and uh, <laughs> the, the, the myriad challenges that have sprung from that. So in your role, tell me how 2020 
pandemic, uh, smoky harvest, everything going on in 2020, how it affected your life and your role, and some of the sort of adjustments you made to get through the year. Oh. I'll bet that's been an interesting question for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, yeah 2020. Uh, I went into go mode. I don't sit still easily. My husband would tell you my days off are hilariously not restful, but they're the best, you know. Um, I, I went into go mode. The first thing I did was make sure my team knew that we were going to be okay. Um, we had the very uh, prescient, um, fortunate situation in that we were renovating our tasting room at the exact time that we had to shut down. So we had already shut our tasting room down in December of 2019. Uh, so we were supplementing our tasting room staff income and we'd had a plan in place for how we were going to manage a totally closed tasting room for an entire year as we shut down for the pandemic. And so I just kept my trap shut because I knew that that was unique, that I had written a budget that didn't include a tasting room during a year we couldn't have a tasting room. It was, um, yeah, I felt very fortunate that I didn't have to scramble on the direct sales side quite as much, but I was traveling 50% of the time. I was on the road a lot and that was tough on my family and it was becoming tough on me. It was tougher on my team here at the winery. And so I went into this mode of, well, what the heck, am, am I gonna be useful? <laughs> Which is now funny. <laughs> am I gonna be busy? Am I gonna be useful? Like, what am I gonna do if I'm not traveling? How will I move back? What, what, where are the needs? How do we even know what the needs are when we're in unprecedented territory and uncharted waters. We didn't know. You know, I was on Zoom calls with our industry where winery owners were they were in tears, you know, and, and tasting rooms were shut down and I went into like, how, how can I help? Where can I get involved? Um, how can I make sure my team knows that they're gonna be safe and, you know, how do I like stand in front of them and block things? And then how do I shore up my role, you know, make, make my role bigger here again um, and make myself useful, <laughs> just as useful as possible. So yeah, 2020 was challenging, but also allowed me to spend more time with the winery folks and those connections that going through the trenches again with those people, they're, they're solidified for life, right? We're all, we know where we were when. And it allowed me to spend so much more time with my family and a close-knit group of friends that we'll probably never get again. You know, we're lamenting now not being able to get together for a month because we're all so busy again. And, and it just feels very much like something that we once had again. Mm -hmm. So I tried to hang my hat on the silver linings of 2020. And, you know, of course, we came out of it pretty great, the wine industry, through the recognition that people are going to need wine during a global pandemic. So that worked out for us in the long run. And um, yeah, I, I refocused efforts on operations here and on sales here. And it allowed us to, to I think, better open our, our tasting room in these huge ways and move into bigger, better things in our direct sales realm. 
and to start doing some virtual stuff out in the national realm. So to really hyper-focus what would have been travel mm -hmm. into still creating and affecting change, um, positive change in sales out in the nation without having to travel to do so. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll hear from every single traveling salesperson that sometimes those trips are a wild success because you were there in person, and other times, why am I here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, an account falls through or, you know, whatever happens, you hear the horror stories and it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. How do we move into that hybrid virtual realm and keep, keep there? Mm -hmm. Well, my next question is what, what changes that were made as you're coming back into freedom of travel and open tasting room again, what were the changes that were made that are, that are sticking around and what is the kind of post or end of COVID environment look like here compared to what it did before? Yeah, we... Uh, went by appointment, as did so many people, most people. Um, I was on the, I got to work on the task force to, <laughs> this is getting hilarious, right? I get to work on the task force um, with the governor's office to help create the restaurant, I know, to help create the restaurant rules. Mm -hmm. So I got to sit with restaurateurs and other um, winery folk, um, two other, three other winery folk uh, folks here and in Southern Oregon to help create those rules around how we were going to reopen during a pandemic so that the governor could sign off on us having guests indoors again. Um, so that was a lot of fits and starts for how we were going to manage traffic flow and put this plant here so somebody can't be within six feet of so-and-so. And, -so. and oh, it was just a lot of, um, it was a lot of like mazes in, mm -hmm. in our tasting rooms. And, Thankfully, that is gone now. Uh, but I think that the idea of airflow, more space, the idea of um, you know creating an experience by appointment where somebody feels more cared for and considered, and that was something that I had always wanted to do with our tasting room and had never been able to do because of our location. We're right off of the busy Highway 99 as you're coming into wine country from, you know, really the, the, the biggest artery from Portland to wine country. We're, we're like the screeching right turn off of the highway, uh, right? <laughs> Who else here made that screeching right turn? Everybody here. Um, so, you know, thinking about how we would move from that to by appointment when people had been used to that, and there were people that had set that precedent or had gone before us and had to move back to an open door policy because people were just PO'd, right? They'd come and they'd be like, oh, I thought we'd had this and you've always been open before and how do we message that to our club? And so we just didn't do it. And when everybody did it and it became a universal, universal need, we had this, yes, total win, right? And it was the perfect timing because of course we're renovating our tasting room and creating a thousand feet extra square feet of space and now we have tables and we have we have the ability to go to the table and and wait on people and, and provide that hospitality and that that deep connection which helps people get to know our wines and our our folks better our region better makes them more comfortable they're not just standing at a bar I and mean, i like the bar personally you know in and out great taste and go uh, but not, that's not for everyone and you want to feel a part of something when you come when you seek out a winery so that's, that's allowed for that and higher check averages. People feel like they're a part of it and the sales follow, you know, that's sort of our mentality here. It's not a hard sale of our wines. We want to show you why we love it here, why we've all been here for years, decades, you know, because it's delicious wine and it's an amazing place and the values of this 
company align in so many great ways in a truly uncertain time. Mm -hmm. So we now get to share that more readily. And yeah, that will never go back. What about with your role specifically? You mentioned you were 50% travel before they shut down to nothing. <clears throat> As you were expanding back out again, how is your role and what do you kind of see coming next for yourself? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm still traveling a little bit, but selectively and only um, probably one trip a month in kind of select times. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's still more development that's needed on what good looks like in the travel realm for me um, and how to build out those visits for the greatest effect. But I do see that there is still need for, for me to do that in certain spaces and value in me doing that in certain spaces. Um, you know, our direct sales program is so large scale now that there is no shortage of stuff to do around the winery. And I'm part of our, you know, five person leadership team here. So it goes broader into operations for the entire company. So I have a lot of, a lot of, um, other duties as needed, right? It's kind of the broad based, the title is, it's as it is for so many people in the wine industry, just sort of a floating title. <laughs> it's this and the dot, dot, dot of all the other things. So yeah, I, I'm excited to help, help this company continue to achieve large scale operational goals and sales goals. So we talked earlier about your kind of initial impressions of Oregon of the industry and, yeah. and, and all that. So obviously you've stayed very connected with the industry here. Tell me about the changes you've seen, kind of large scale and small scale changes you've seen in Oregon. And, and what does the industry look like now, 2022, compared to the industry that you joined? Way bigger. <laughs> Way bigger. Um, we're seeing scale and I think that's exciting. We're seeing scale that rivals scale in California, even to some degree. And we've needed that, you know, that we're a community of artisan producers, right? Tiny artisan producers. It's in all of our presentations. We talk about it often. 70% of our wineries are under 5,000 cases. Um, you know, 50% of them are under 2,000 cases. That's tiny, itty bitty, right? So as you see these larger scale wineries like ourselves at A to Z growing um, and having a foothold to grow, it's, it's really wonderful to see that our that sales out in the nation, Oregon wines above and beyond any other domestic wines are growing in double digits while everybody else is either holding flat, growing in a small single digit or in some cases declining. Um, so there's room to grow and we need that quality pyramid because what you have when you have that that pyramid of everybody operating in the same price point, in the same idea. It's all from right here. It's clone 666 and 777, where it's, it's all pomard, and it's from right here, and it's, it's $55. Everything's $55, right? Where do you, what do you do? How do you discern between a thousand $55 Pinot Noirs? You have to have the, the full-scale offerings, right? You have to have an entree. You have to have an entry point. I think the most, the thing that I, I get most excited about when I meet somebody new and I tell them where I work and they say, A to Z Pinot was the first Oregon Pinot I ever had. I light up because that's our goal. 
that's what we want. We, you know, we set out in the early days, this was Deb's brainchild, right? A to Z Pinot, her brainchild. That was the point, was to have a Pinot Noir that was readily available, not overly expensive, you know, a great value price point that, and was delicious, high quality, that anyone, anywhere could get a hold of and understand what Oregon Pinot Noir is about. And I believe we've held true to that through the years. So I, I think that that scale that you're seeing now, innovation and scale to that degree, is only going to help because those entree points are going to pull people to the $55 area, right? You don't just start there. I mean, I don't. Kudos to you if you can. But, you know, often you're trying something for the first time and you're, you need that, that uh, easy entry point. So, but it has to be good. It has to be good. Absolutely, it has to be good. So scale, and you know, I think you're going to see um, more outside investment from other wine regions. Global warming, I'm sure, has been a theme for so many people in these. Um, our, our, our harvests are marked by heat now, and that wasn't really a thing until the early 2000s. And, and in my time here, you know, 2010 and 2011 were my first vintages that I got to see here, and I was selling 2007. So it was, you know, fire, brimstone, rain, flood. It was the whole thing, you know, and, and how you how you sell those vintages or how they age, you know, it's really exciting to see that that differential. And it wasn't until 2014 that it was kind of boring, right? <laughs> it was an easy year. It was an easy year. Here's an easy year. Here's an easy year. Because we still have that wonderful diurnal temperature swing. We still have those great acidities and, and you know the development that you can only get here in Oregon, long season. But not as not as much farming on the edge. So when you asked earlier about 2020 or this year, you know those exciting times, those times where I think we can go back to farming on the edge and talking about what happened that year and what we did to to showcase this, this grape we love, or these grapes that we love, the wine that we love. Um, I get excited in those years now. So I think you're gonna see more consistency out of the Oregon wineries, um, which I think will help those double-digit sales go even higher and bigger. I think people are knowing more about Oregon wines. Pinot is ubiquitous now. It was not in 2010. We were still trying to equate Oregon with Pinot Noir. And, and that was the message broadly. And then it was Willamette Valley with Pinot Noir more specifically. And we're still, we're still making sure we're doing that at every end. Mm -hmm. But people know it now. And I don't think I've come upon a person that doesn't understand Oregon Pinot Noir in recent years, where definitely in the first years, what, what's that like by comparison to Burgundy or California? Um, yeah, we know what we're doing now in, in a lot more ways. You know, plantings are becoming more, you know, well understood. We know our soils, we know our aspects, we know our regions. We're starting to, you know, subdivide our AVAs or, or develop new AVAs again. Um, because we know now not just geographically where something sits, but how those soils perform and how that region differs and what effects change for the winemaking at the end of the day. So I, I, that's been exciting to be, a, as I wanted to be at the beginning, an actual visceral part of in my work in the broader industry. Um, 
gosh, what hasn't changed, right? Second generation has become third in some places. Young upstart wineries and winemakers are the norm, not the exception. That's exciting. Yeah, we have a pretty vibrant industry. And I think you're starting to see the sustainability piece, which was inherent, I believe, in Oregon and to Oregonians, whether you were born here or moved here. It's, it's a driving force, right? That, that touchstone with inclusivity broadly and, and sustainability broadly. I think you're starting to understand that much more broadly. Like we're, we're a B Corp here at A to Z Wineworks. It's those values that have kept me here for 12 years um, that I'm so fiercely proud of. We now have t 10 of them, nine of them, nine of them. A fee just became one, ninth B Corp oh, wow. in Oregon alone uh, winery. And people are understanding what the heck that is. That was, that's new. In 2014, when we became one, it was, you know, half of my job in talking about the company was also talking about B Corp and explaining what the heck that was. And I almost had to become, you know, B Corp re representative. Um, so those, those bigger scale things, understanding that it's not just about sustainability in the vineyard, but it's sustainability of your entire operation. That's been exciting to see that change. And, see those adoptions. So you talked a little bit about some of the things you're kind of anticipating for the future of Oregon wine. If you, as you look ahead, what will the industry look like down the line? Are there things you're excited about that are coming and are there things that you're perhaps fearful of that are coming? I'm fearful we'll move our way out of that window of being able to grow Pinot Noir here, you know, as things warm. I think we have this narrow window right now and I heard a statistic some years ago that we'd be growing Cabernet Sauvignon by 2070, which is fine, I like Cab, okay. <laughs> but it's a different environment, you know. Um, so that would be one I'd be a little fearful of, just where does that, where does that window fall and when does it become climactically untenable mm -hmm. for this grape we love. Um, I'm excited for all the new varieties and new experimentation that are coming and being lauded and being understood. Real excited about Chardonnay. That was, that was not great in the first few years that I was here. <laughs> I remember getting so excited, like white burgundy to me is just, you know, birds are singing. And so I came and I was like, oh yeah, we're in a similar, similar climate. We never get Oregon Chardonnay anywhere. Let's do this thing. You know, I'd had the A to Z, unoaked, beautiful. Like I want, I want to taste all the Chardonnays. And I was like, oh. Cool, Oregon Chardonnay, ooh. And I just, yeah, it, it wasn't for me, tasting broadly. And then we found our stride, right? We stopped trying to be something we weren't. We planted in the right places. We planted the right clones in the right places. Thanks, David, and all, all, the whole team, right? Um, and, and now we know what we're doing, and we're unapologetic about cool climate Chardonnay. And our clones have, adapted to our soils and have become epigenetically exciting <laughs> in, in ground instead of fighting, fighting uh, where we're planting them by comparison to where they were from. So yeah, I think there's, there's some excitement in, in seeing Oregon Chardonnay and in going to places like Las Vegas and having them know, having the songs like know Oregon Chardonnay and get excited about Oregon Chardonnay and have one, have Oregon Chardonnay on a list that's exciting. 
Uh, and I, I think it's exciting to see what people are doing with, with our varieties now. Growth, plantings, all of that. I can't wait to see what the Rogue Valley and the Applegate and, and Umpqua do with their regions as well. Those are some exciting places. Dynamic, so much potential. Last question for you. Hmm. Uh, and this is one we haven't asked in a while, but I'm really curious your perspective on this. So given all your wine experience, your wine education, uh, tell me what in your mind is wine's role in society? Ooh, wine's role in society. I think at its best, it's a connector. I think at its very best, it's an educator. And I think if we are doing it right, working within wine, we're keeping both of those things at the forefront, and I think they should inform everything that we do. Love that, that's a fantastic answer. Okay. All the questions that I have for you, anything I didn't ask is. that I should have, anything we didn't cover that we needed to cover today? It's I don't think so. Thank you so much for your time, for your, for your stories and your candor with us today, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks, Rich. Thank you. Thanks, Gal. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.